Welcome to episode 65 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're a couple of CNC enthusiasts, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about what we're making and life in the shop. Eddie, Chris, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm tired, but uh, it's been a long weekend. How about about you, Chris? Uh, I'm also tired, but uh, it's been a good week nonetheless. Yeah, just for our audience, we're recording... uh, on Monday, we usually record on Sunday, but I was I was tied up yesterday. So, is this a client job that you're running that's like uh, urgent, or is it just a really long program? It was uh, normal urgency, but yeah, it was a long running. So it was um, so these acetyl parts I make usually run, eh, I'd say the average between five and twelve hours, depending on complexity. For Mike Six versions that I used to make, would be you know those are run like. 20 to 50 to 80 hours of machining. This is like the first acetyl part that I had that was going to be, or that it ran just over 30 hours. Yeah. Cause it had a pretty high, uh, yeah, high cell count. Plus it was, uh, had to run like really small tools on some of the geometry. So it was fun. It was a good challenge. I, I enjoyed doing it and it got it shipped out today. It's a good feeling. Yeah. It was a good project for testing out the, uh, GoPro rig in the, Neo. So that's working pretty good. I just kind of whipped together a prototype. I mean, most of it's off the shelf parts, uh, but like version one, I, I, all I really designed was the mounting bracket to leverage the, uh, some existing features on the Neo, like the, what Winston was talking about last time, the work stops that are on the vacuum table. There's like a little T-slot on the edge of the table that, um, that you can use for basically attaching stuff. So yeah, so I just whipped up a little Delrin bracket that could thread a Noga arm into. So like the first mistake <laughs> I found out testing the rig over the weekend was, uh, I bought the, like a, just a cheapy $12 Noga knockoff from Amazon. It works fine, except it's not rigid enough. So like, if you see the videos I posted this weekend, they're, uh, you know, the Neo gets some pretty high acceleration. It just makes the camera wobble on that, <laughs> on that long arm, or it's, it's actually a pretty short arm. It's like a two inch segment arm. But um, it's not, you know, it basically the camera just swaying in the wind a little bit. So I have a real Noga arm that just came in today. So um, I'll be testing that next. I think it looks like already it's much more rigid. So I think that video quality is going to get even better on the next one. But uh, the lens I have on, I got to get the camera pretty close, but um, actually really happy with the footage I'm getting off that setup. I use the GoPro, like I tried to use it in the E210. Couple of years ago, it's the same one I had. I've had at least it's a Hero Five. It's an old camera, but um, it's like I didn't have a macro lens in, so I wasn't getting good focus that close inside the enclosure. But with this lens setup, which I copied from Winston uh, or his idea, <laughs> I think I didn't make it myself like Winston did, but uh, it's working really good. I, I'll probably experiment with some more lenses so I can get a little bit further away, or maybe a little bit wider shot, but. Uh, yeah, that was pretty. I was pretty happy with that. I don't. I mean, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier, but my client, one of my clients, actually pushed me to do it. They wanted. They, they like to share some of the machining footage on their parts. Um, I can't post it, but they post it on their on their social media. So, uh, like, he was kind of pushing me to up the up my recording game. You know, the video quality. So that was kind of what drove that. Uh, just finally, you know, getting a working solution in there, but. Um, but yeah, I definitely, you know, for other stuff, I can use it for my Instagram 
uh, posts. So hopefully it'll be incentive to post a little more often with some better footage. Yeah, my my uh, acrylic win or the polycarb windows on the New York are getting kind of even with like just doing a seal all the time. They're so they're kind of getting a little cloudy. And not so good for shooting video. This is like I'm staring at it now, and it's just it's so pretty because you're machining without flood coolant. The lighting like is more like it's pretty good for just any VMC. Plus you've got your supplemental lighting. So just the aluminum, the fixture plates are so shiny. It's like, it's super cool. And it makes me want to get a Neo just to shoot video like this. <laughs> yeah, it's actually pretty good. It's a good machine for it. Cause like I said, no coolant and it's such a big table. You can kind of, there's room in there for a camera and, and work holding and all that stuff. You know, for a small machine it has a like relatively large table. And it's actually, you know, the designs, it's kind of open enough that you can, you can stick a camera in there without colliding with stuff. You have to kind of check it out. Like, uh, I did actually, uh, almost run the spindle into the camera on one of the things cause I forgot which direction, like I was doing like a pattern cam and I forgot, like, it's like you program it one way, but fusion will do like whatever order it wants to, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's kind of, it jumped over like to the one column to the left of where I was expecting and like, Ooh, that was awfully close. <laughs> did not contact, but it was close. Um, yeah. So I think probably I need a, what I want is like a lens that'll get me that same kind of view reframing, but with a little bit more distance. So, uh, I mean, where I can, you know, move the camera probably another four inches back. So I may pick your brain on that one since if you can suggest. Yeah. I think it's like they sell macro filters of varying strengths. And I think it's just a matter of finding the right one. Uh, if you pick up a set of three or four and just swap them in, see which one works best. Yeah, I mean, even like, is there such a thing as like a macro telephoto where you can kind of be further back, but not too far back? Like, I'd probably um, like maybe usually to... like those adapters go before the internal lens, like at least on a mirrorless or an SLR. Um, so I don't know if it would work on a GoPro, but you can um, digitally crop in. Um, most of the sensors oversample, so you can pick from like wide or linear. Um, and if you don't need 4k, you can crop in pretty far. Yeah. I was shooting, I shot a little bit of footage in 4k. The only downside is, uh, on at least on the hero five, you have to go down to 30 frames per second for 4k, which it looks kind of weird. You know, it can't keep up with the, some of the movement of the machine. Although, I mean, kind of, it works. It just looks, it makes the machine look ridiculously fast, but, uh, yeah, I mean, 60. it is ridiculously fast, <laughs> but... Yeah, I can shoot at 2.7K, which is what all that footage I put up. Yeah, basically down rest it to... Or recompress it down to 1080p for Instagram format. But it was... The raw footage was 2.7. And that looks even better. Like, you should see that. It's 2.7K at uh, 60 frames per second. I don't know. I haven't tried... Does the GoPro... It does slow-mo, right? Or Yeah, it does. I might try that. It does. Um... I don't know how bad the compression will affect the chips flying off because fast moving things can sometimes look a little uh, crunchy and pixelated, but I mean, it's worth a shot. You already have such a clear image to start with. Um, I think the downside might be reduced battery life because you're processing more data. Yeah. So I only need it for a few minutes, you know, footage like I would, where it seems to work really well is on the test cuts where I just have like one small block and it's, Cause you know, the spindle motion is 
well defined. I know where it's going to be so I can get the camera pretty close. Um, when I'm doing like the full size part that covers the whole table, there's only a couple of places I can safely put the camera and it's usually too far away to get good focus on the, where the action is. So, um, yeah. So if I, you know, when I'm doing this, just the test part, it's a pretty quick cut, like maybe a minute to three minutes. Um, should have enough battery, like even a slow-mo for that. This is, I'm worried about the lighting, the flickering on the LEDs and the Neo. Maybe I could kind of drown it out with my, with the video LED light. There's no way to turn off the, uh, the Neo's lights. Is there? Not in the control, but I mean, I actually just go to the control panel, probably unplug the one, this, the two lights. <laughs> I was actually looking at like already looking at replacing that strip with different lighting. Um, I just got to kind of figure out what, like what power it takes. Cause I'd like whatever I put in there, I'd like to kind of have it connected to the same power source. It's just, it looks like just a simple LED strip, like you could get from Adafruit, you know, it's got a protective shield over it. Take a multimeter, see what voltage it is, yeah. and just find a drop in replacement. Yeah, it looks like there's a little, was it 50-50 LEDs or whatever they call them, 2020s. But, uh, is, is the GoPro the only thing that's small enough to fit in there that gives the best quality, or are there other cameras that can... There's small cameras. Um, actually, I saw this one... Oh, should I saved the, it's one of those, like something I just stumbled across on YouTube. It was another, um, maker. I think he was doing, I can't remember what kind of work he was doing, uh, woodworking, I think, but he had, um, this camera I'd never seen before. It's smaller than a GoPro. Uh, and the footage on it was amazing. It was like 4k. He shot some action footage with it. Um, I think it has a very short battery life. Will the Datron fit an iPhone? tilted in there yeah yeah I, ha I used to have the iphone like i have a noga arm with an iphone mount that i made um i shot some footage with it before um the only thing is i don't i was doing aluminum there and i didn't like having my phone in there <laughs> it's like it's getting all messed up but uh, i have an old iphone now since i upgraded that i would happily sacrifice yeah yeah i still think the like the gopro's shooting great video so i can't complain that yeah you know, i kind of dismissed that camera before because i didn't like the footage coming off of it um but I think this is like the perfect application. And with the new lens, I think that makes a big difference. The, the default lens, I mean, the, you know, the built-in lens for this close-up work, just no good. But uh, the good macro. There are certain things about it, the GoPro, that make it good. Uh, because there's so few moving parts, um, the footage is actually very stable. Whereas in certain phones with uh, digital or even optical image stabilization, uh, the vibrations from machining can, like, if you have a floating lens element, can actually make the um, video look blurry. Yeah, actually, the other thing, I think the, I mean, the GoPro's fixed focus, right? That's the, like, I had trouble with the iPhone always refocusing, right? That was, um, even if I locked the focus, then it was out of focus because the part, uh, of course, that, that's when I had it mounted. I didn't have it mounted on the table. If I had it, like, constant distance from the part, like I do the GoPro, it would have worked a lot better. But, uh, yeah, I was afraid to stick it on the table because I didn't think my little like the 3d printed iPhone holder would hold up to the acceleration, but yeah, it would probably work. I think, um, actually it's form factor wise. Um, it's probably, yeah, it's probably actually taught. It would be taller than the GoPro. I think in there, um, once the lens is like pointed in the right place, it, it would probably, it might actually hit the top of the door or the underside of the door. The GoPro just barely fits like to get a good angle. Like it, it's almost touching the top of the, or the 
roof of the door, the ceiling of the door. Does that make sense? So there's another place, like I, I'll probably try it on the spindle necks, like the Z housing. There's a couple of M6 threaded holes there. I don't know what it's gonna look like, you know, if it's basically moving with the spindle instead of moving with the part or with the table. But it might be might be interesting to see what kind of footage comes out of that. It looks good though. I mean, I think your your lighting thing is good, and after that, it should be golden. Yeah, the lighting was um, so like when I built the adapter bracket, I actually put uh, three holes, three threaded holes, so I could have like three Noga arms on on it. Like one was for the camera, and I was thinking one or two lights, depending on what I thought I needed. But um, but actually, the light works fine outside the machine. I just set it on top of the door and have it shoot through the glass and it's plenty bright so it kind of actually acts as a diffuser lights up the whole scene instead of being too spotlighty you know what i mean H having to go through the carbonate polycarbonate because it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like frosted glass already right because of the chips yeah yeah so i think that actually works fine and i'd rather not you know have one more thing in the machine that could fall off or or collide with something so um yeah so i don't know i'll 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 probably uh, take another design iteration on the on the mounting bracket and kind of slim it down a little bit um, and kind of do a final version. Then I'll post that up on Thingiverse in case anyone else. You could actually 3D print it. I, I machined it, but uh, I'll, I'll make sure I kind of keep it 3D printable too in case anyone wants to just print one if they have a Neo and want a quick, easy camera set up in there. Have you considered setting up a keep-out region around the camera? Ooh, no. That's actually not a bad idea. Um, yeah, so, I mean, with the vacuum on the machine, um, there's really only one place, like, to mount the camera. Because usually, well, I guess you could vacuum mount it. Shit, I didn't even think about that. You could. You could make <laughs> a little pallet for it. Yeah. Actually, that might act, yeah. Of course, it gets it more into the danger zone for collisions, but... Um, yeah, but actually what I was thinking, I'm, I'm already kind of trying to figure out what I want to do for when I have the fourth axis on there. And that's actually, would be perfect to film with the GoPro. So um, I've already started, you know, that's a lot easier problem to solve because then you can just bolt to the conicals on the table, the M6 conicals. You just thread a, a quarter 20 hole into that and screw the Nova arm into that. Um, <laughs> I'll take a 5% a royalty on that if you commercialize the uh, in-neo GoPro mount. Yeah, so I'm excited. I want to test my the new Nogar and see if I can get uh, kind of wobble-free footage. So I think I'll have something up next weekend. Have you thought about making your own like a locking mount or something that's maybe not infinite adjustability, but maybe like a two-axis or something, or just sort of like the the GoPro um, like that system, how it's just got like uh, like interlocking fingers and you just tighten them with a screw, and it's pretty rigid for what it is um, but if you made it out of aluminum if you had like a toothed interface or something clamp two arms pretty good i have the i don't know if you've ever seen the gopro suction cup mount for putting it on like cars it has that two-piece articulated arm and it only moves in one axis right um or i guess two axis but i that was originally like the target arm I was going to use. And then I realized like, no, I actually need all that adjustability uh, that you get with the Noga. Cause you, like I was putting the camera all over cause you have to really think about where the spindle is going to be going. And then kind of like to get an interesting shot. Sometimes the camera's like leaned way over to the left, <laughs> like over the table. 
And uh, yeah, so I think it, to, for my setup, it makes a lot of sense to have good adjustability. Um, and it's cool because like the one thing I really like, and I wasn't really thinking about this when I designed it, but uh, um, you know, screwing into that T slot, you can that's that gives you a whole another axis of adjustability. You can slide that whole mount bracket from one end of the table or anywhere you know anywhere along that rail. So that's usually like my course adjustment, and then I use the arm to get the lens looking right where I want. And yeah, the, I mean, you have to kind of move around. You have to have that flexibility to kind of stay out of the collision zones too, and still get the lens pointing where you want it. So yeah, the two things I struggled with were the door. Like to get a really good shot, the camera needs to be kind of high looking down, um, depending on what you're doing. And then you kind of, you run into hitting the door. Um, if you go right over the part with the camera, then it's too close to the spindle unless it's a really small tool path, right? Which I, that blue part I did was perfect. Like, cause it, you know, it was like probably one and a half square inches that the spindle was moving. And, uh, you know, I knew it wasn't gonna leave the boundary of the stock the whole time. So I could get really close on that one. But when I tried to do like the full part, there was trouble finding a, a spot that was close enough to get a good shot, but safe. So I don't know if that's, you know what I'm saying? I think this having, if you were doing like a fixed part all the time, then probably that simpler arm would work. Like if you were doing vice work, it would work. If you're doing full plate work, you're gonna to have to be able to move all over the, the machine to kind of get a good shot. So I did have like I was feeling like Winston when I was doing this. <laughs> like I hardly ever think about that stuff, you know, the framing and all that kind of stuff. But um, careful, Eddie. Pretty soon you're <laughs> going to start a YouTube channel. I have one. <laughs> like, I would have to ask my client before I do that. But um, I'll do something else that's like my model, my design, and not theirs. Um, that's safe to post on on YouTube. Yeah, I'd really like to get some fourth fourth axis work up there. Are we going to be able to link to a public post that your client uh, publishes? Can we throw that in the show notes? Probably not. Let me ask him. What he's fairly protective about is he doesn't necessarily want people to find out who his supply chain is, like who his machinist is. I think a lot of people that follow me know who, know who the client is, but he doesn't want his competitors finding out. So uh, like, he's pretty picky about what I can post and what I can't post, which uh, is fair enough. You know, it's a pretty competitive market. So what have you guys been working on lately? I don't know, Chris. You seem to be doing a lot of fun stuff at work. I don't know if you can talk about it, though. I can I can generalize about it. Um, so these potential clients came into our office asking if we want to take some work from them that they can't finish in-house. And it's basically uh, 3D printed parts out of either Inconel, titanium, or aluminum. And these are complex parts with like inside channels that are basically unmachinable. And they would basically 3D print plus maybe 50 thousandths or something. And then we would uh, probe that part along these certain points with a heat map for deformation. And we would have to adjust the part in a way so that we could machine it within tolerance, uh, accounting for all the deformation using the heat map. Um, so I'm, I was super stoked about this. When they came into the the office and start talking, uh, the boss looked at me and the other programmers like, "So what do you guys think?" I'm like, "Let's let's do it, you know, like let's let's go, like let's sign the dotted line." But um, the thing about a job like this, it's going to basically take one of us away from doing everything else because you, you're going to need somebody to basically spend all their time figuring this out, right? It's not something that 
it's just like coming in and we're going to bang it out like in a week or something like that. Um, pretty complex stuff and uh, incredibly tight tolerances. So making sure that you can probe properly and, and pick up on everything within the heat maps, like allowed tolerance was, is the complexity of it. So do you, do you know if like for the same part, is it, a, is it like a per part heat map or like depending on at what depth it was in the per print? part? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, every part the same different. part yeah that's what i was wondering yeah, I know. <laughs> that's a lot of work so like so basically it's like we need to refine our process so that we can account for it we basically each part is a different it's like a new part each thing is like a prototype um because the where they print and how it prints is going to be off in different ways so um we're you know so i i was super so i hope we get it or i hope we can work it out in a way um i know it's going to be rough though because it's only two of us that could probably take on the work and we're both pretty busy. So one of us would get knocked out, which means the other person would have to be able to carry the load. So um, it sucks, you know, like I, I see something like this and I wish I could just take it, but it, it's just depends on what's good for the company type thing. But, um, but yeah, no, super, super stoked that they even considered it, you know, like I've been begging them for just get the harder stuff, you know, let's see if we can try it first. Cause uh we have the equipment, we have the the enthusiasm here. Like we have people that want harder stuff, like, you know, try to get, and we'll just see what, we'll, we'll see if we can do it or not. So I'm happy that they kind of listened and, and they're starting to pull in a much more difficult work for us and, and see what we can pull off. So yeah, that that's about it for that. Um, for the other shop, I've been working on a part uh, very slowly, but working on another part for a different customer trying to get a, a other revision done for them and then um or revisiting the intake again uh, making adjustments to the flow uh after we dine with the bike and stuff we want to make some improvements so uh kind of the same same but just a little bit different uh, but that's about it what about you winston i don't know not a lot's going on at work uh launching a new machine but that's not a big deal <laughs> what um, <laughs> so um ever since we launched the shapeoko pro um, which is the linear rail shape Oko still belt driven. Um, it's built on an architecture that we really like and um, is sort of something we want to bring forward to other machines or at least machines in the CNC router category um, because it's, it's very scalable and it's super rigid. Um, so that's uh, if you look at the shape Oko three and the shape Oko pro there is like no shared DNA in there. And it's really hard to retrofit that to leverage the benefits of the uh, what we're calling the hybrid table architecture. It's basically extrusions that go across the machine in Y, on top of which you stack um, custom extrusions with an integrated T-slot and recess for MDF uh, slats uh, that go in the Y direction. Um, and you, you bolt those together, and that gives you a lot of... Um, resistance to twisting and parallelogramming of the frame so assuming you square up the frame before you tighten everything down that structure is going to be super flat uh super rigid in terms of resisting torsional loads and everything uh, and it's a good foundation on which you can build your machine and um like the biggest benefit is like these are built on the uh, extrusions that the the nomad frame is made out of um so it's like about a, a two by one inch uh, hollow aluminum tube, pretty thick wall. And um, like that is like 
basically the bed of the machine, the frame that you build up the the rails on, is not going to sag unless your table basically collapses. Um, so Shapeoko Pro had this uh, that you build up from this frame. Shapeoko 3 did not. And looking at this, um, you can't help but think that there's the potential to make the 3, but put it on a hybrid table. And honestly, it's I think it was uh, one of the weaker areas of the machine that you put leveling feet on it and everything, um, but you only have a couple discrete points, like four or six uh, feet that you can use to level out the bed. And in between these, you can still accumulate a little bit of sag. Um, but you put it on a super nice um, foundation and the rest of the machine is just suddenly elevated in terms of like performance and um, I don't know. It's just something I feel so much better about that I can trust it. Like if I take like a, a two by one foot sign, uh, sometimes like if you're trying to do a really shallow engraving, um, assuming you've still like surfaced the bed and everything, if it's something heavy or if I'm using double-sided tape and I sort of lean my weight on the, the bed of the machine to sort of stick it down, sometimes I can knock it out of uh, flatness. And uh, having a st solid structure that you can basically transmits the load directly into the table beneath it that means it's never going to sag. So I'm really excited about the machine. Um, there's some other minor improvements here and there. It takes the wider uh, GT2 belt, so belt stretch is basically a non-factor. Um, improved V-wheels. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess it gives you a lot of flexibility in work holding. Um, the, the machine structure is not going to move. And the V-wheel system, which some people hate on, but honestly, it's it's like the AK-47 of the, <laughs> the CNC router world. Uh, they take it takes a lot of abuse if you break something it's super cheap to replace you don't need to worry about like humidity uh, which is a big thing like people in coastal areas like if you let a machine sit for a couple months and you come back and you didn't like drag the machine back and forth make sure like the linear rails had like an even coating of grease or oil on them you're gonna start picking up rust spots uh, anyone who owns a table saw or like a drill press knows this and so like I've had my Shape Oko 3 for years, and it's it's still running basically like new. If you just replace V-wheels, replace belts, whatever, um, super easy to tune up and keep running. So it's a, it's a really good general purpose machine. Um, but yeah, the 4 takes it to the next level, and uh, I'm pretty excited to start making stuff with it. Did you guys keep the same Y-axis extrusions when you guys went to from the 3 to the Pro? Yeah, X and Y uh, both use the same extrusion. Yeah, those are super beefy. Yeah, they were kind of overbuilt for the three anyway. So that's I was wondering if Ed was able to kind of build on top of those for the newer machines. I yeah, had a feeling you... they are super overbuilt. Like we could make like a a really wide machine if we wanted to, uh, but that's more like a manufacturing limitation. Um, so even though we don't need to keep the Y rails like fully supported. We still have multiple standoffs uh, tying it down to the uh, the base frame, the hybrid table. And it it's kind of like, instead of preventing the Y-axis from sagging, the Y-axis is kind of keeping the bed from sagging because it's that overbuilt. Um, but either way, like machine components supporting other machine components, it you, you can't go wrong there. 
Yeah, I like the new design because you can you can have a really stiff bed without moving to like full aluminum, you know, uh, table. So the machine can still be pretty light. Um, I liked having an aluminum table on my machine just because of the work holding. Well, I guess the T slots would have been <laughs> those would have worked too, but um, but it was heavy. Like I couldn't really just. It was kind of hard to pick up. It was just a little too wide to just pick up by yourself and move like you wanted it somewhere else. I would imagine it stays pretty light with extrusions, kind of hollow hollow rails, architecture like that. It's, this one isn't as light as you think. It is it's still over 100 pounds. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, it's um, heavy. Yeah, we didn't really, like, we could have made a thinner two, but we just figured we already have the Nomad extrusion. We want that to be structural. Um, there's, we didn't. Like with aluminum, with extrusions, like you kind of pay by the pound. It's not really like the complexity of it uh, once you have the die. So we're just like, yeah, make it thick, make it beefy, especially because we want to have the freedom to drill holes anywhere because we're machining everything so we can tap holes. and. Well, you, I don't know if you got to finish what you were saying. So, so you guys are looking at this architecture for kind of what comes next? This for Shapeoko, um, if we for some reason want to scale up or scale down a machine, um, this, this architecture works, uh, cause previously the shape Oko three, we had like that bent sheet metal front and you can really only scale that so far before that sheet metal gets like really twisty from end to end. Um, and it, it's not going to keep a machine square or, uh, keep you from parallelogramming. So we can take this as our foundation. We can go up, we can go down. Um, so, I mean, I think this unlocks the potential for future innovation, um, in our lineup and uh, we'll see where that goes is there a four by four in the future we've talked about it um the the problem is um the architecture of our machines uh depends on the ends of the gantry our x-rail to be perfectly perpendicular because you're slapping end plates on that and then you're mounting those end plates on the either the v-rail um the v-rails on the shape oko 4 or the linear rails on the um pro and uh i mean we could do like the dual axis like y homing um but it's just easy enough to uh, make sure the ends of the x rail are perpendicular so it holds onto the carriage plates straight um because otherwise like you can imagine if the ends of your extrusion are not perfectly square um like it'll push one end forward and like one end back or um like if you look at the from the top down the x rail as like a trapezoid or a parallelogram um it's gonna settle out funny when you turn off the machine the gantry the left and right will like tweak and rack in different ways um so the way we fight that is we machine everything we don't just trust the um the saw cut extrusions uh some of the early machines did and like even if it was like out of square by like a 16th of an inch or an eighth of an inch and people rolled the gantry forward and the ends didn't touch the frame perfectly, people freaked out. Um, so that sort of drove us to like, all right, we'll just machine the extrusions. Um, so right now we've got like a VF4 or two, uh, just chugging away, chopping up these extrusions and also tapping all our holes and drilling, uh, mounting, uh, clearance holes and stuff. Um, to do a four by four foot machine, uh, would require like a VF6 or bigger. And that's a much larger capital expenditure that we need to look at carefully. Um, well, I can't say we won't do it in the future, but we got to get everything squared away first with our existing product line. Yeah, I think a machine that size needs 
kind of needs a stand and everything else, right? It's got, that's kind of needs. Yeah, I mean, you could like we're selling these to woodworkers. They're pretty comfortable building their own frame, but then it also means like our shipping box is going to be ginormous. Yeah, UPS and FedEx already don't like us. We have to split up our boxes. People hate that, like, the Shapeoko ships in two boxes. Uh, but it's over 100 pounds of, of stuff. And if you go above, like, 70, 75 pounds, like, it's... You either got to put, like, a heavy two-man lift sticker on it or, like, the it turns into freight, basically. Um, so we have to split up these boxes. And I don't know. There's a lot of subtle logistics that could be overcome. We're not quite there yet. Hopefully we'll get there in the near-ish future in the next year or so. So where do you see the the new machine? Is it kind of is it going to replace the Shape Up 03? That's the new. It is. It is replacing the the three, um, and the price increases slightly just because there's there's a lot more material. There's a lot more mass in that structure. Um, it's a smallish delta, um, and I think I can say this because my boss said it, but. He knows that the price has increased. It's not his favorite thing to do to like raise the bar of like entry into the CNC world. So there, like I said, this this architecture is scalable. It's modular. So there might be a way to make like a, a shape Oko mini something or other, and and sort of bring that entry price point down because there are a lot of players in that like like sub two thousand range and. A lot of them, like, there are some compromises, especially in terms of size and work area. So, like, I don't know. Maybe we can scale down a shape Oko or not. We'll see. Um, but this, the hybrid table architecture, gives us the freedom to sort of explore that down the road if we're like, hey, you know what? There's a, a viable market there. Yeah, that's cool. I need to catch up on, I have not been kind of keeping up on the latest at, at C3D. And actually, I'm not even <laughs> haven't had a chance to catch up with Bantam and see like I, was, I think their machines are shipping now because I saw I see a lot of them starting to pop up on Instagram. So I think they finally got theirs. You know, I know they had a little bit of a delay, but I think they're starting to fulfill their their pre-orders and maybe even moved on to to current inventory. But um, yeah, it's like there's so much exciting stuff going on in the hobby world. And actually, you know, same thing with like. Pocket and see, I see a ton of good stuff out there now. Like I, I used to feel bad that I kind of wasn't posting as much. Now it's like there's people posting much better stuff than I ever did online, like doing real work, um, impressive work on those machines. So it's like, I don't know. I feel good about that. Like this is a good year or a good last 12 months. So many, you know, new machines are out. Like if you were just starting out as a hobbyist, you can still get like a shape book with this better than anything like any other shape that's been on the market, right? In the last, how, how long has it had that? Almost probably eight years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Carbide 3D, I think they formed in 2014. Okay. so like, But like um, a $2,000 CNC now is better than like any four yeah. $6,000 CNC, like half a decade. Exactly. Ago. And I mean, just, you know, the hobby stuff is so much better than the hobby stuff was a few years ago. And it's like... It's, it's neat. It's like, I, I don't know. It's almost like I see it happening, you know, <laughs> like uh, more people coming into this. Um, I don't know how many we're stealing from the 3D printer world, but uh, we'll cover that in a second. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, it's cool. It's exciting. It's like, you know, I have the Neo, so I feel sometimes I feel like I'm losing touch with the hobby community or I don't know if hobby's the right word, but you know, the desktop CNC community. 
Um, I shouldn't say hobby because a lot of those people are doing you know, uh, real work for real money, right? They're running their own companies and you can do real work on those machines. Like people still have a hard time believing that. Um, and you can't do everything, but there's, you know, you find the right niche, you can actually build a product around it. So um, I'm starting to see more people doing that, actually, you know, selling stuff that they're, they're making on those machines. So super small startup costs and, you know, if you're creative enough and good with the CAD and CAM, you can pretty much build whatever you can think of as long as it's small. Right? That's the key thing, small and not crazy in the material choices. But, but yeah, so that's, that's cool. I think you guys are doing a great job. Uh, all all the the desktop CNC uh, companies are like just continue to innovate, and it, it makes me happy. And it's also like just like hitting a new audience because every now and then, like um, like we'll get an email from someone saying like, "Hey, can I use a machine for this or that?" And they're not from like small businesses or individuals. Like these are larger companies, corporations. And to for them to realize that they can do something that they would normally have to outsource, even if it's like a quick prototype or something, um, people are just finding more and more ways to, to justify a small CNC, which is really cool. Uh, I know my old, like in the Navy, um, we had a small lab that was uh, trying to prototype some just aluminum plate work. And just the, the turnaround time, the paperwork, the bureaucracy was just so much to get this sent to the machine shop that we have or had. And uh, they were just like, hey, let's just buy a little CNC router. How hard could it be? The, the software has gotten a lot more approachable. Um, and so they just they bought a Shapeoko and they started knocking out parts. It doesn't have to be super high precision, but a lot of the time, like even just the ability to make something in a real like material that you can hold and feel and test and hold up against a, another model uh, is valuable in and of itself. Um, that's also why 3D printers are so popular. You get less of that interruption to the creative flow if you're, you know, when you're designing something, if you can just very quickly, you know, physically hold it, test it, see if it fits, see if it's like what you had envisioned in your mind, right? And if not, very quickly, you know, iterate another version of it, right? That, I mean, I guess we're kind of spoiled now. I've never, like, I didn't come to this hobby or trade now for me um, when it was hard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think most of the problems have been worked out before I ever even ran across it. But, you know, I can't imagine, like, I guess it used to be, yeah, you cat, you, you design something and you had to either send it out or, of course, not even today. That's, you can still do that in a super fast turnaround with someone like Zometry uh, or those kind of guys or the, plethora of the, whoever um you know they're kind of making that yeah there's like shapeways for 3d printing there's send cut send for laser cutting it's a good time to be a maker yeah it's kind of it's definitely interesting times so a lot of support for creative people right a lot of tools now um to help you kind of facilitate getting ideas out into the real world so that's really cool i like that oh chris i wanted to go back and ask you about um uh, so you, you showed us, and we can cut this out if you can't talk about it on the podcast, but um, you sent a video a couple of days ago of some like in-machine automation when you guys were doing some small part batching. Was that oh, yeah, for yeah. the cycle shop or the day job? Yeah, it's for the cycle shop. Yeah, so you guys had, uh, there was a, uh, what was that? What was the machine? This, uh, it was on the VF4. Yeah, so the VF4 was picking up, like you'd, you'd machine a part and then you'd, 
looks like you picked up some sort of uh, end effector with the spindle. Yes, basically it's a it's a shift link for the motorcycle, and so look, it, yeah, it looks like a boomerang almost, like a really small boomerang with three bosses in it or bores. And we got these two big slabs of aluminum. They're like twenty inch by four inch thick and twelve inch high, and we stack them next to each other, and we basically machine, you know, maybe six parts down each row, and then we take a slot cutter. And we actually cut the bottom off and we leave tabs. So basically the part is suspended in air now with just like maybe two tabs on the bottom. And then we have this uh, custom tool that we designed that goes in and the spindle's indexed. And it comes down and these three prongs have O-rings on them and they go into the bores. And then it twists, it rotates at like one RPM and then it pulls it off the tab. Then it lifts the part up and over. Um, and then it starts to spin over sandpaper to get rid of the tabs. It sands the tabs off and it cleans the bottom. And then um, at the very end of it, we have this little uh, sheet bent like device where it goes in and it just drops the part underneath, almost like a, um, like a crowbar. And then it lifts up and the part slides down into this box. And we're doing a 20-hour cycle time and it gives us 96 parts by the time we're done with those two blocks. The thing that really caught my eye was the uh, the gripper that you had in the spindle. I'd never seen that before, so you answered my question. You guys is d designed it yourself. I thought that was super clever. Um, yet another reason I wish I had an indexable spindle on <laughs> the Neo. Marvin was showing me some stuff he's doing this weekend that was crazy that you couldn't do without an indexable spindle. Um, I don't want to. I think he'll, he's going to share it this week, but uh, it's just say it, it reminded me of the. Uh, Robo Nano, <laughs> a super high accuracy, uh, like single point diamond thing. But anyway, um, so I mean, you basically have, you're using everything that's kind of just built into the Haas without any third party automation, and you're getting like pretty efficient workflow and batch like parts handling inside the machine. I, I've actually adopted this way of thinking even at work. Like a lot of times when I'm given bar stock or something or um, whatever, I have to make five parts and I can fit them all. I'll literally just stack them vertically and I'll, I'll mill the top part and I'll slit saw cut and then come in with uh, like a blank dowel pin and just push it off and it'll just fall down into this little basket we make and I'll get like four parts or something off this vertical rail. And it's just like, you know, cause we lose, we lose money when we have to have an operator stop to swap a part. So the longer I can keep the spindle running, and the more parts it can produce per stock, then the more money we make, the more efficient we are, right? So I, I kind of like it. Like, it works really well. Sometimes it just takes some creative thinking of how you're going to do this or how you're going to pull the part or something like that. But uh, for the most part, like, it's been working great. Like, that style of thinking, which is, like, stack it vertically, right? And use a slit saw to cut it off. On the on the shift link, how many layers did you go down on that block before you had to swap out the stock? On one block, we get like, what did I say? Like 96 parts total. So like 40, yeah, it's like 40 something parts. It's a lot. I, I We lose count and we don't, because we, we come back and the, it's small. They're like maybe when we come back, like that whole bucket is filled and we'll take it out and then we'll put it in the tumbler for a few minutes and they're basically ready to sell. Like we don't have to do anything. The other thing I can't run, I don't think in the new is some, I could run something like a slitting saw. I don't think I could run a, the keyway cutter, but that's about it. But uh, yeah, it wouldn't fit in the ATC. The best part about it is like we can start it in the morning 
and it'll basically run like for 20 hours straight with no supervision. Um, it's not it's not a tight tolerance part or anything. So like if it starts to wear within a couple of hours, it's still fine. Like we built that into the into the part in the beginning. Yeah, I um, think the trickiest part would be like since you're working with tabs and you're you're well, I don't know. You had a little bit of like I was thinking when the spindle comes down with the uh, gripper, the O-ring gripper, like it does have to align to the holes, right? But if the tabs tabs can move around a little bit, right? The parts can move around. We we have enough tabs where it doesn't seem to move, but the 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 O ring thing is tapered as well, so that if it if it kind of goes in, it'll kind of like semi adjust itself, kind of like a loose tab holder. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. The uh, part will just move till it's centered, right on the right. It, it'll push the part. Yeah, exactly. And then that's what we want, anyways. And then it'll just turn and, and pull it off. Um, so that that's great. That machine literally is just taking care of itself, and then. Uh, they've diverted their attention to the lathe. They're doing more complex, like subspindle transfer stuff, and then I've just been on the five-axis, uh, proofing out, multi, doing multi-fixture things now. We're 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 trying to get like we have a bunch of these other small parts, like pedals and things. And I'm trying to think of a way where I can angle them on a tombstone fixture on the UMC, so I can get like maybe eight to ten parts in one tombstone fixture, and basically like that thing will run for a couple hours as well. And, you know, our operator will basically sit there and do nothing for <laughs> for four hours while he waits for everything to finish. That That's the idea, because the more we can do this, the more we can justify buying more spindles and more machines. The whole, like the sequence where it picks up the part, takes it over, sands it, while it's all being held by this, the gripper and the spindle, and then drops it into the the uh, parts catcher. That's pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool sequence. Where did you come up with that idea or did you see it from somewhere and what are you programming that in? Everything's in Fusion and it's not just me. It's also my my buddy that, you know, slash technically my mentor, like the mold guy that kind of I met at the school and he and I have been buddy buddy since. And he's always in, he's always been the one pushing for us to like stack things. And in the beginning, I wasn't super into it, but then lately we've been doing it more and more and now we just make it a routine where... When we when we get apart now, he and I would just look at each other and like, okay, how can we stack this vertically so we do, we can walk away from the machine? So, I don't know where he got the idea from. I think it's just something he picked up from working in the industry for like 34 years as a mold tool die maker. He just kind of came across this like, he he's always trying to be super lazy. So the less he walks up to the machine, the happier he is. And so like, um, so we had to basically just figure out how we were going to position this and then like how we were going to bring you know what tool we would bring in to come uh, uh, pull the, the part off the tab and we went through a couple of prototypes and then you know because we have like a, a sheet metal press machine it was easy too because we could make our own like sheet metal press thing for that last part where we bolt the sandpaper or we glue the sandpaper on there so we, it's just nice because we had everything we needed to like make this little automated system all within the machine and the great news is like if we change to a different part it that's it's kind of off the table so it doesn't affect like the space. We can still use the vices for other things and uh, and things like that. It, it, this will be much easier to understand once you see like a video or a picture of it. I, I know like everything we're explaining probably is hard to bring into like visual to visualize everything. But yeah, basically your stock became your work holding on that solution. That's really cool. Yeah. And the sanding that was kind of cool. So what were you guys? <laughs> what were you sanding off the tabs on the bottom? The tabs. Yeah, and actually it leaves a good finish. Like. 
when we spin that at a thousand RPM with the cooling as like basically like lubricant uh, and the sandpaper, it it actually leaves a pretty decent finish, and that's why we don't need to. Uh, yeah, we don't need to tumble it for very long, literally like a couple minutes, and it, it cleans all the, it evens out like the finish, and then that's it, like it's done. It, we just wrap it up and we put it on the shelf, it's ready to sell. That is super crazy. You Do you think that um, your end effector is strong enough that you could put like a, a tool insert or something and sort of fly cut the bottom of the part? It's just O-rings holding it, right? It's just O-rings holding it, yeah. I wouldn't spin it too fast. I'm just trying to think of like a bunch of different ways. Like I'm trying to think like what if you put like a little venturi pump and then use like through spindle air blast or something to to create a vacuum and use that as like a little gripper. This is a super cool idea. I mean that that's the great news is like the more that we that we've been doing this, the more we keep one upping the next time we do it. So like it's it's been really fun to try to like figure out well how do we take this to the next step and and stuff like that. So um it, it it's just like one you know i hope it it you guys can take it and do something cool with it too because then it'll be fun to see what you guys come up with but i i'm curious because i've never really seen this done online uh you know like this way of autom basically using the three-axis machine to turn itself into its own automation like uh for basically beginning to end and stuff so um yeah no it, it's been fun and like uh, each part is basically a different challenge right uh, being able to figure out how you're going to how are you going to tab it? How are you going to pull it off? How are you going to cut it? And you know stuff like that. Hey, uh, Winston, did you, I don't know if you've heard the latest bomb podcast, but it sounds like John Grimshaw got there. So they turned their shape echo and they were trying to turn it into a lapping or burnishing machine. It sounds like, I guess that, that happened. So I don't know if he's posted any video of it yet, but they were using it to, um, I think he said lap the, uh, the tent pin track onto the, I assume onto the blade. It might be onto the, the handle, but I'm, Hoping he'll post a video of that. I want to see that. I think, you know, that's a pretty cool motion platform just for experimenting with for other stuff other than to CNC. I mean, other than milling, I should say. I mean, it's, if you know how G-code works, any CNC becomes just a generalized three-axis platform. I mean, I've, I've stuck a camera to a Shapeoko and used the Shapeoko as a motion control rig. So I remember that. So I haven't made much progress on my little uh, XY. I think I've talked about in the podcast before. I'm trying to create a instant inspection, visual inspection system um, for these parts. So they're they're basically a lot of repetitive, they're like pattern, uh, small pattern features across the large plate, and each one kind of really needs to have a visual inspection. Like my client would love to have a chance to kind of see the work before it ships on each one. So. Um, right now I just take a sample of a few of the hundreds of <laughs> features on these plates and the other ones, um, kind of representative, like one out of 10. Right. Um, but if I could automate, like put a little camera on X, Y platform and just basically home it and then just have it go across the, you know, basically use the same fusion file that drives the, in the milling to kind of run a camera across every cell and take a picture. I probably have to do it three a left center or left right above and then a right. So I'd, I'd have to either have three cameras or figure out some way to tilt the camera, um, like put it on a little rotary with a stepper and a belt so it can kind of get an oblique view of it. So anyway, that was kind of, it's kind of overkill, but I wanted to do it just cause it's kind of like a fun project to build. And I had that 
Arco, um, I had the laser, my laser cutter platform that got repurposed. So it's like I have the laser on something else, but now I have this like XY uh, Gerbil powered, uh, you know, super light, super fast, 16 by 16, or I think it's 12, yeah, I think it's 16 by 16, um, XY platform, right? It doesn't have Z, that's the bad side. <laughs> so I don't know if this will work. Uh, I think like maybe with autofocus it'll work. But uh, anyway, so I was kind of thinking it for a moment there, I thought, well, maybe I just get a shape Ogo. Like, of course I just got rid of mine, but, <laughs> um, but for this platform, right? So that might actually work. If I need Z, that's probably what I would do just to get kind of, and that would give me a little bit more room too. I think I, I almost need 18 inches by 12 inches to cover the whole, uh, maybe a little bit less than that. Eventually I'll have time to work on that. <laughs> just haven't had any time lately. But speaking of that, so those kind of little projects, um, there's some other stuff too, like some uh, work holding stuff that like, I'm getting to the limit of what my trusty little uh, printer bot metals, simple metal 3D printer that I've had for years and years and years. Like it's, it still works, it's very reliable, but it's, it's like slow. Like I'm sure that like, there's better stuff out there on the market, right? Um, mainly with, you know, bigger print, area this is i think the printer bots i want to say 150 by 150. i can't remember what the z is but z is actually pretty decent on that but the you know i'm always running to limits on like parts i want to design are too big to print even diagonally on the table and it's not it's like a actually it's 150 by it's more of a rectangular table so i don't know 150 on the long axis and even less on the short axis so i probably uh, I'd say definitely going to get um, like a better 3D printer this year, an, an upgrade. I'm not ready to make my decision yet. Haven't really even started the research. Like I'm trying to decide if I just go with something that's going to pretty much work out of the box, which is my initial inclination. So, um, you know, I don't want one to, to have to tinker with too much to get it working. I want something fairly reliable. I, I did rule out like, I was looking, I was thinking about SLA at first, but that's not really what I need. FDM is what I need for the kind of stuff I build, which um, is good because it's a lot less mess. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like the results you get with SLA, but I, it is too finicky, right? It's, it's tricky to get good prints out of those. I think even the, even the high-end ones, um, you know, the form lab stuff, I, I, I hear enough stuff that makes me think that's not really what I want. Because um, in the end, when I press print, I just want, I want a, a good print. You know what I'm saying? I want to be able to just walk away and come back and have a part uh, nine times out of ten. Yeah, which uh, I don't think SLA is really quite there yet. And I don't need the materials that, like, or the materials I want to work with are more suitable for FDM. Um, so I'm doing like engineering mechanical parts, kind of what I'm interested in. Eventually, like, a lot of the stuff will end up being machine. I mean, there'll be a machined version of it, but I want to maybe print it first play around with it like you were talking about Winston just see if it fits you know I, I kind of think I want to get back into having a, a good 3d printing prototyping uh, capability here so I want to pick your guys brains about I don't go too deep into it but like what brand should I be looking at what like I think I would like to have ideally like a 500 by 500 no that's not right 300 by 300 like 12 inch by 12 inch kind of minimum bed size I don't know, maybe six inches of Z height max. There's only really one good printer out there that has that kind of size, which is the one I was looking at, which is the Ender 5 Plus. It's 
350 by 350 in the XY and 400 in the Z. Do you know if it supports uh, or has good support for dual extrusion, dual extruders? Like if I wanted to use support, dissolvable support or, or like two color? I, I'm not, I don't know, Winston, do you know? I'm not sure off the top of my head, but what? It does not out of the box. It's a single extruder. But the good news about these types of printers is like the framework is solid for basically anything you want to do. They'll have some kind of mod out there that you can just put on there already. I've seen people do multicolored filament uh, heads and stuff like that. And, and, you know, people will mod in and change up something to make it fit their needs. But that's kind of like what I like about those printers is they're really affordable um, and they give you a really good base. And if you want something special, you can, it's very easy to mod it. And um, this Ender 5 Plus has dual Z supports for the for the bed. So um, it's one of the few actually out there that have it. And also it's got a really nice workable area. Uh, 350 by 350 by 400 millimeters is, is pretty big. It's pretty decent, um, yeah. Yeah, it's decent. You know, like anything else, you, you might be caught in a situation where you want just a little bit bigger and then you might as well have sprung for this one. They just, Creality just recently, I think early this year, they released like a bunch of new printers, like the Ender 6, which is their Core XY printer, and a couple other things. But um, I don't like that one because it's it's kind of like the Ender 5 Plus, but the Z plate or the up and down only has one singular column support. So I, I don't know why they didn't keep the dual support like they did from the 5 Plus, but I feel like the next iteration of their machine is going to be the one I want, which is the Core XY printer with the dual Z support, and then that's probably the one I'm going to pull the trigger on. Um, and they also have that other one, that CR series, where it like prints diagonal on the side of the bed, and it basically can infinitely print, because as it rolls around the roller, it pops the part off. I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, it's like a conveyor belt bed. Yeah. Um. But like that's a, but the thing about Creality is like these printers are they come in kits and they are getting easier to install. Meaning, I think they're the the base plate comes fully installed now, or the table, and you just have to put the frame together. Um, but you still have to you're more than capable of doing it, but you do have to spend some time putting it together. Yeah, I have no problem putting it together. It's just once I have it together, like and it's working, I want it to keep working. You know what I'm saying? I don't want it to have to be fiddling with it all the time. Want to be reliable. The Ender 3 Pro that I bought like two years ago, I installed it once and I literally can leave it like turned off for three months and I'll just turn it on and I'll just print. I don't even level the bed because I'm lazy and it works every time. It just, it prints. I got spoiled with the, with the printer box. It's like that. Yeah. I, I left it off for like literally probably two years and pulled it out of the closet. You know, when I basically switched over to CNC milling with the, I think I got the other mill. That was like my first little machine and the 3D printer wasn't getting used. I needed the room. So I kind of put it away. And then a few years later, I needed something 3D printed. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to like tune it all over again. Nope. It just worked. Once I, I built it on a flat surface to make sure everything was like level when I was building it. And I built it on the table that that's been sitting at and I haven't moved it. I think if I... If if I were to move the printer, then I would probably have to like realign something or like set the Z again. But literally, I haven't touched it, and every time I turn it on, I just hit print and it prints. Uh, I haven't had to worry about it. I I had to like get it set and get it going and everything. But once I have all my parameters figured out and everything, I just you know it's just loading a profile and printing. It, it's it's as close to printing goes you can get. I'm interested in maybe some of the other like I only print PLA here. I don't have a heated bed, um, but I think like some of the stuff I'm doing. 
like they have in mind, I'd probably want something a different material, PETG or something. Yeah, yeah. This this thing can do uh, with a different nozzle. You can do PETG, um, PLA, and then there was one other one. Oh, uh, I was looking at nylon. Uh, there's one more plastic I'm blanking right now. Begins with an A. But yeah, but basically, with the simple swap of the head, you can get more complex materials or higher temp materials. Uh, you might need to change out the bed to like a glass bed or something or whatever. But it's all there. Like you have the frame. You just have to change like like the tool holder, right? Like you're just putting a new tool holder in, pretty much. Yeah, I think the other thing, like the other important criteria for me, I don't want like an oddball printer. I want something that has like a big support community and yeah, a million people using it, and everyone knows the little tweaks to get it working right. Hundred <laughs> million people. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. They have it. Yeah, so Ender it's and a, Creality are the kind of the two. Big community. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I was looking at. I think Voron. It's called Voron, but that looks. Um, you know, it, it's too far out there. I think unless you're really into three D printers and, and more like you're buying one to experiment with one. Um, I don't know if they're really. Like kind of set up to be production printers, but uh, or not production printers, but you know, printers for, for printing idiots like me. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll look at those. I think, uh, like you said, I might wait if there's a new. I don't know how if they're like Apple and they they have like a time of year where they release their new machines, and you're supposed to, you know, if you're if it's July, you should wait till September kind of thing or. <laughs> I don't know what their matter. cycle is, but uh, but they just re- like this new year. I think that they came out with like four or five different models and stuff. I just feel like this. You can look it up. The Ender Six Pro would have been perfect. I would have pulled the trigger, except for the not having the dual support for the table. Like if it had that, it, it would have been perfect for me. But so, what's the issue with that? Do you get flexible flexing in the table, or I, I mean, I'm going off of Winston's suggestion, which is you should have it. You know, for anything like that. If you're doing small-ish parts um, or light parts, it's not that big a deal. Um, so we have Ultimaker 2s at work, and those have the, the single lead screw and uh, linear rails in the back, so the build table's cantilevered. So the front end can sort of sag down or tilt if you're printing something big and heavy, or if you have a lot of like, if you're printing like a big gear or something where you've got a lot of direction changes, sometimes you can build up a resonance or a vibration in the whole machine frame, and that's where you would see weird artifacts in the the surface texture. Um, if you're printing simple things or small things, it's not a huge deal. But if you want to like be able to use the full uh, build volume of the machine, it would be something that should cross your mind because small things you can just print it close to the back near where it's better supported and you won't have that sag issue um but when you're trying to push the full envelope of the machine or or something with really weird geometry um in the back of your head you'll always think about that kind of get into 3d printing a little bit later in another episode i think um after i've done a little more research and kind of narrowed it down i'll i'll throw out my kind of my top two ideas top two machines I'm looking at and let the community speak. Oh, the one more thing. Um, if print speed, uh, like a lot of the like sub $2,000 printers, like they're not going to set like printing speed records. But if you can trade off a little bit of resolution, uh, I would look into a, a larger diameter nozzle uh, just so you can extrude more, um, like just more volume per second. 
and that'll help yeah, it. Yeah, I think I have um, a point two, which is pretty fine on my printer, but oh, that's super yeah. fine. Like we use like point four as a standard, and I have one printer outfitted with like a, a point eight, um, and that it's not like a like it doesn't cut the time in half because there's still a lot of travel time and infill, um, but like it's at least like a thirty to sometimes 40% improvement in print time, which is, yeah. I had the fine nozzle because what I used to print when I first had it kind of benefited from the higher resolution, but now I'm more, like I said, I'm doing more bulk mechanical parts. Thick layers are, are fine, <laughs> like probably actually stronger, who knows. Let me ask you about the Ultimakers. Are those pretty fast or compared to like the hobby machines? They're zippy. The motion control is nice. Um, I just don't like the, uh, the filament size they use. So they use 2.85 millimeter filament. Uh, I think commercially, like they just lump it under three millimeter filament. And my understanding is that that's a carryover from the old days where like you'd have plastic filler rod for like, uh, like just fusing plastic parts together. Um, and so that was the most commonly available extruded plastic filament you could get. Um, the problem with it is that unless you get like the best quality, um, that stuff, it's, it can be a little too stiff. So the way the Ultimaker routes the, um, the filament off the spool can sometimes create a tight bend and the filament will snap. Um, and then you'll just, you'll stop extruding. Um, whereas the 1.75, I think millimeter filament is a lot more flexible. Uh, it's a lot more forgiving. Um, so I've had multi if you're using the Ultimakers and you're in the first like 75% of the spool, you'll have a great experience. But once your spool starts running low and the the filament is wound more tightly around the inner area of that spool, uh sometimes it'll just spontaneously crack and you'll just have the filament left hanging. The machine will extrude what it has left in the the, the Bowden tube, and then it'll just stop printing. Are they like twice as fast as a consumer printer or just a little bit faster or the same as that kind of? I mean, it's, it's a little bit faster and at the higher price tiers, there's a lot of like subtle things that you're looking for, like surface quality. Like if you're printing a sphere, like how much faceting you get on the, the outer surface. Uh, if you're printing overhangs, uh, does it leave like stringy filaments uh, behind so it's like the cleanliness of the print. And a lot of that has to do with how well they designed the hot end, like the cooling fan and um, just are the fundamentals, like are the, the thermal properties, the physics of the machine, are they sound? Um, and that's just like, they think about that a little more and the components are a little higher quality. Um, but it it very quickly gets to the point of diminishing returns for the average or prosumer yeah, i think it's just, you can only go so fast with fdm there's like some physical limits probably the melt speed and all that kind of stuff um yeah because i i don't think there's a large variation between like the slowest and the fast fastest right on the market yeah. honestly my cr um uh, my ender 5 prints pretty close to the speed of the ultimakers at work um, but the prints that I get, there's a little more stringing between like two different parts. If I'm printing two and the print head is moving between them, I'll get a little more stringing there than I would on the Ultimaker. And, and one of them shows a little more faceting than the other. Um, but like 
for prototyping, you look at the shape, they're pretty much the same. They're like within like one or 2% size wise dimensionally, like of what you want. So it's yeah, for like the stuff I do, I, I don't care too much about like the surface. I mean, the finish, right? It's, I care about dimensional accuracy, you know, not being insanely off. Um, I compensate for that in my design for, you know, printed stuff, like leave a little bit larger margins, right? For like through holes for bolts and stuff. But um, yeah, that's cool. I, I will definitely, yeah. I, I mean, unless it's like, 50% or 100% faster. I don't think I need to be looking at like the higher end stuff. It sounds like the the hobby can prosumer consumer stuff is the right place. That's where the most innovation is probably going on these days anyway. So especially if Ultimaker's still on three millimeter filament. <laughs> That's like legacy, right? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's doable, but in my experience, it just, it's not as like, I hate to keep using the gun comparison, but like the the lower cost printers, like the the Creality line, though that's like where the AK forty seven of the three D printing industry kind of is. Um, there are other brands, like a lot of people, like have messaged me, like, "Hey, have you looked at this or that?" Um, and I'm sure a lot of companies do make a solid three D printer, um, but from like me and Chris, like our experience, we got a sub six hundred dollar printer, and we're like. It has exceeded yeah, our that's expectations. Exactly what I want. So I want. Um, I don't necessarily want a boutique printer. I want something that's like the like you said, the AK forty seven. Every you know, there's a million of them out in the world. Everyone knows how to fix them, or you know how to diagnose a problem with them. I think that's they're really good. I mean, and the the there's no limit to the possibility. It's just how much time you want to put into it. It can be modded to hell, basically. Yeah, it's back. a pretty big aftermarket for like improving those machines too right i think i was definitely on the hot ends i've seen some lots of hot end stuff for yeah for those tons and the great news is you don't have to do any research everything is done for you there's literally hundreds of youtube videos or pages or whatever that tell you this is what you need to buy here's the best thing to buy and all that stuff yeah it's like getting a Haas, right so i i went boutique on the cnc machine which i'm very for me that was the right thing to do i'm very happy with that um and i enjoy like learning about the Neo, the 3D printer, I just want to, I don't want to think about it too much, but, uh, cause if I'm using it, like I said, I just want the part. Um, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm not into 3D printers. I used to be pretty heavily into them, but, um, or into working with them. I should say not, not into the, like, I only had one brand and it worked and I stuck with it, but, but yeah, I think it was like a toaster, right? I just want, I want it to work every time I put bread in it. Well, this is a good, good one to look after. Okay, well, well, we'll come back to this topic in a later episode once I've got a chance to to figure out what I want and how much space I have. That's the other thing here. i got to have room for it. So um, I, th- I think whatever I'm looking at is going to be a lot bigger than my current footprint of my current printer. So, yeah. All right. Well, guys, it's uh, getting kind of late. Anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? We'll, we'll save some, some more fun stuff for next time. I'm good here, too. I'll talk to you guys later. All right. Talk to you later. Good night, guys. All right, have a good one.